Yeah, welcome to my podcast. This is a rare introduction before the start where you were warned that for the next 30 minutes I'm going to be going off on my blah blah blahs about compilers and after that I'm going to start getting back down to earth. Good morning, people of the planet Earth. It is 6.16 in the morning on a foggy cold day in the heart of the state of New Jersey. I was quite happy with yesterday's podcast and it might take a while to sink in. But we're going to continue on this path of discovery and analysis. So when we talk about security of programs, intended and unintended execution, the lady researcher said, oh, well, compilers have, um, don't have these security problems, but they do. But nobody runs a compiler in the public for other people to give input into. That's the issue. Compiler is dangerous and you don't expose it to the world. You don't run untrusted code through your compiler. You don't compile untrusted code, etc., etc., etc. So it's actually quite dangerous. And the language is that you feed compilers are quite expressive, can contain recursion. So for those of you who are interested, a compiler takes source language and compiles it to a machine language, for example. Now, I'm kind of working on this theory in my head, this idea. that these um, paradoxes and infinite recursions, these fractals, these complicated things that we don't understand completely, that they are part of life. That's an oversimplification, of course. Just waking up here, guys. And girls and peoples and things. But I do have some pretty cool leftist podcast to clip. With some juicy bits in it. So <laughs> it's called The Best of the Left. And it actually clips other leftist podcasts. And boy, I have some insights into that. But first, I'm going to go through my introduction. So that's the format of this show. Maybe yesterday we never got past the introduction, but who cares? So basically, I'm, I'm working on this theory that Hey, good morning. I need to get out my beanie as well. That's a question of who gets to um, have the freedom to, you know, infinitely recurse, etc., etc., etc. And that um, you can build a system that has certain openings for usage and give an expressive compiler 
you can exploit all of those. Now, in the security context, the lady's talking about a program actually running on the internet or running with an attacker next to it who's trying to feed it malicious input. Right? She's saying limit the scope of the language, limit the scope of the inputs so that you don't get into something that's going to cause unintended execution. Now, when you're working on a program, the author, the person using the compiler, as I said, is allowed to create malicious inputs. There's no real system for catching. So I've been working on this um, I've been working on this idea of getting rid of the recursion and getting rid of the vagueness and creating larger and larger blocks of fixed types like we talked about in previous episodes ad, ad nauseum it's like well we have a dynamic description of objects but they're only used in certain ways, and we can reduce the size of those, the cardinality of those dynamic descriptions to a smaller set. But they'll still be dynamic because the user will still be able to select between them and compose them. Otherwise, the system would be completely static and not really useful. So we're going to give the user some degrees of freedom to select between inputs. We're just going to reduce the expressivity of that. And we're going to create a tool to take the dynamic input, the AST, let's say it, and we're going to pair that with one of these static chunks. So we're going to create a way to map these descriptions. This description of, of, of types onto real types. Morning. Well, that's what the compiler does. It'll compile your types to real types at, <coughs> at runtime. So that's one thing. But yeah. So the problem statement is given a subset of an abstract syntax tree, a graph, find an object that is associated with that. And that will get into some kind of lookup structure constructing a canonical ID or a string so we flatten it to a string of some kind using a predictable manner and then we use that as a key into a dictionary to find the object, let's say. use some kind of graph matching system. Where we have some gra graph structure in memory, and as we traverse it in a certain manner, we match possible objects as nodes along the tree, or conjunctions of those nodes. So like a decision tree. Yeah. 
we could construct a decision tree based upon the objects we want to find. And ideally the name of the object will tell all. So I've also was thinking about creating bigger and bigger blocks of these objects, these constructors in Haskell. And then even representing um, identifiers, let's say the int type, that could be an actual constructor, turned into a constructor in Haskell, or say an int the type int, like the big named type int, the big one, that is actually just a data type in Haskell, and the constructor of it contains all of the information that we've extracted from the compiler on that. Packaged as well as we can into neat little chunks of sub-objects in the constructor so that we have the whole abstract syntax tree in the constructor of the type of the data type in Haskell. Now creating an instance of that type, it's not an instance of int, it's an instance of the type descriptor of int. We could also transform those into constructors in C. So that's kind of where my mind is at right now. Building bigger and bigger constructors. And with the hopes of removing recursion and removing infinite loops, circular loops, and all that fun stuff. So, I was thinking that if something will refer to its containing node in an infinite loop, we can create a special identifier. We'll say, references to pop the stack twice and the type that's represented there or follow these paths back and give me the type so that it would give you an instruction to, for recursion that you would know how to resolve because you can interpret that symbol like a self-referentiality that's explicit. Now, if you actually use that, you know you're going to go into a circle, but you can re reason about it because you know what it is when going in. So, that's one idea that I had. So we're going to continue on this, but in the end, we might get to the point where we explore this idea and then we reject the whole thing. And then we're going to start all over again, but we're going to learn something. And every time we learn something, we gain some information. And uh, the point here is to build up some mental model of what's going on. Yeah, and then let's like to introduce some more concepts. Now this is my therapy session right now, guys, so. 
I'm sorry if it's not full of super interesting stuff. But you're going to have to deal with it. So, let me just kind of grab, grab my thoughts here. Okay, so if we have a theory and we um, prove it, we try and prove it, and, we, and then we reject it. Let's say we're caught in a paradox, and we're constantly trying these simple theories to try and prove and disprove what we're looking at. How can we recognize that? How can we get ourselves out of the loop? Right? How can we catch ourselves? And the question is, what are we actually learning from this? Are we blindly following some symbolic rules, or are we actually consciously making an effort to understand? So, this gets into the question of what are we looking at? What was the thought of the other person when they created it? Can we model those thoughts? Are those thoughts underspecified or recursive? Right? And can we recognize that? If they have an infinite loop built in, see, this is where we get into this whole introspection idea, where if we follow, if we follow what someone has given to us as source code, then we start to build up a mental model of what that person was thinking when they wrote it. And if we model the graph structures of the programs, if we model the execution graphs of the programs, and we slowly build up an understanding of what actually is happening, let's say in our database, in our introspective dashboard, let's call it, then then we're kind of copying stuff or reprocessing things we're doing some kind of scientific exploration of someone else's program. But if the depth of that program is very complicated and recursive, then we can also just get lost. And that's kind of what the Gödel paradox is. It's like, if you have some simple way of understanding this input, I'm going to add in extra complexity to the input so that you're going to fail to understand it. And especially if I know what automated tools that you're using to, um, to do it. So we're kind of getting into this issue of, I think it's called parity, or uh, sender and... Um, receiver like messages and that we're getting a message that's basically the wrong type it's um if you've got too expressive of a language if you allow for overexpression but expect it not to be and you're asking for trouble and I think this is just this idea of exploitation is really the question of actors and let's call them memes programs 
method of executing and bad actors, hackers trying to exploit them. So, Now this kind of gets me into the idea of um, glitching a game or a game console. I don't know if it's been done before, but let's say you get this game console and it doesn't have, um, it's got all this copy protection on it. But, some games you can get them to crash. And, um... I was just thinking... That you might be able to... Construct input to that game. Let's just say Minecraft. Where you can get it to execute things um, or crack out of the system so either by manipulating the joystick or manipulating the data files Minecraft is basically an interpreter that's going to interpret a world a world file going to generate a world file and then interpret the world file and um, then it's going to allow you to interact with it which triggers more random behavior like monster spawning and stuff like that So I'm thinking thinking well you know we know we can do uh, Turing complete uh, programs in Minecraft you can construct uh, compilers that are interpreted that's for sure and people have written virtual machines and compilers in the Minecraft block world But I'm wondering if you can write a world that will actually crash the uh, console and that it will allow you to get access to the um, operating system and run any code, arbitrary code. That's like they have this Donkey Kong uh, CD for Xbox that I heard about. It contains a glitch that can be exploited. So it's obvious that there are some codes that are then trusted by the console, which are in fact malicious. Now I have a broken Xbox 360 that I could try and hook up now we haven't talked about machine learning too much recently but it seems to me that machine learning could be used as well to try and construct some type of exploits but I think some of it's also exploit uh, combinatory 
these are just some ideas I really don't want to spend the time on them right now but these are just thought experiments So yeah, so we can talk about Minecraft a little bit longer though, that we have a, a world and then we have a program that we want to implement and then we have to generate a path to construct that um, code. So in order to construct code in Minecraft you have to use materials of certain types, redstones, which provide power and electricity, and then decision-making tools like sensors and actionators like pistons, and all other types of things. So you have limited decision-making blocks. And then, of course, you can just place them in a world file. But let's just say you can also um, control your character to... Um, to build them and you can also uh, do AI I guess to control your character to um, mine to play the game actually so when I was reading up on this Turing complete and incompleteness theories it turns out that cell cellular automata Certain forms of the, uh, I think it's rule 105, certain cellular automatas are Turing complete, or the cellular automata itself is Turing complete. In any case, you can use it to program arbitrary machines, and there's a whole theory on that. So, that's kind of interesting. <clears throat> yeah, so I think um, in the end we could construct something that would control the joystick and look at the screen and replace a human that would, let's say, interact with the game in a certain way that it could try and execute arbitrary code just by mining items and constructing things and given enough time Um, you could have it do arbitrary execution of some kind. Well, not... It could be slow computation. So this is where we kind of get into the levels and levels of interpretation. And sl getting slower and slower and slower. because we said we can implement nested Turing machines, but they're gonna get slower and slower as you have to execute one, and it's a side effect that executes the other, it's a side effect that executes the third one, but you're still using up space and time and resources to do that. <clears throat> That's another thing to think of. Okay, 29 minutes. Now it's time to switch some topics here. So yesterday we talked about, I think the most important part was the theory of 
of the uh, extended phenotype of the um, aggressive gene. The dominating impulse. And that we're in a constant fight against this thing. So I proposed that this leftist uh, scholar went through a mutation in his meme, his behavior, that was created by his aggressive nature, subconsciously, and that we might see the attempting to be social, attempting to be left-leaning and caring about other people as a way to hide or mask our own aggressive genetic material and that we're really fighting against that. where we have the body fighting against the gene, which is the real master of the body, according to Dawkins, that the genes enslave the bodies that it creates for the purposes of reproduction and sacrifices them as well for the purpose of the genetic survivability. I think that there's some kind of connection here. It's possible. It's definitely something to think about. So that's the new theory, just to spell it out, which I came up with yesterday on that example of that professor. I said something doesn't make sense. And again, this is into the paradox of the accepting and then rejecting of ideas and it's very well that he might as well accept these libertarian ideas and then reject them again because all of these ideas are oversimplifications and Even the idea of individual liberty is oversimplification. So language is not the proper <clears throat> thing to convey meaning, and the English language is very limited in its expressive capability, according to philosophers. And I think what we see here are different established um, genetic types that are aggressive by nature and preserve their superiority or hegemony as we talked about. Um, and that peace is existing in these equilibriums of power, let's call them, 
that's kind of uh, the theory that I'm working on right now. So that's just recapping from yesterday. I know it sounds horrible what I'm saying. <coughs> it really does. But it's my working theory right now. Oh, not even a theory. These are all hypotheses. We don't really have a theory because we don't have any have any proof. Okay, so now I'm just going to state that the first half hour of this show is more of me blathering about compiler stuff, which no one really wants to listen to except me. Look at that buck. That is a good looking deer. It's got a nice color too. They're getting darker. More gray brown. So, we're going to start with the best of the left, and they're discussing the um, postal system. So, I skipped over a bunch of the introduction, where he's basically saying that um, <clears throat> they're basically saying that um, Trump wants to use... <clears throat> The defunding of the postal system to bolster his election or to uh, set it up so we can question the mail-in ballot and then um, they're talking about the new guy who was appointed as postmaster general who was a large donor and they said that he is um, related to or involved with the um, competition to the post office. Now here he's going to say that the post office is not a business. It is an American value that <clears throat> should exist to deliver mail to the needy independent of the cost and I understand that um, now these are the these are the points where we get into um, a conflict and uh, I think it's an oversimplification. Again, things are being oversimplified. So basically, they're saying that um, we have to care about the people who are in jail. And people who are in jail are also not uh, fairly in jail. I think they'll have that as well. So the poor people in jail, yes. And the poor people who are sick. And the poor people who are poor meaning, we should have sympathy for them. So we should have sympathy for the weak and the people who have injustice served against them. And I agree, we should have sympathy for them. And then he's saying that we should have a wasteful um, and incompetent and unfit system to implement that, which I don't agree with. So I think, um, yes, there are problems, and yes, people do need some kind of support, but the idea of using the government to provide that I don't necessarily agree with in the reading of the um, Constitution 
and what we did on previous episodes, there is no clear constitutional um, statement that the post office has to exist in any way that it does right now. And that um, I, I experienced a deregulated postal service in Germany. And um, I'm also working in other deregulated areas. And hey, you know what? You can also burden the uh, deregulated carriers to also be forced to take up these routes that are not... Um, profit-making um, it doesn't have to be the postal the US Postal Service that actually does it it can also be a third party who enters the contract with the government to deliver the mail and um, they might have to also take in areas which are not um, advantageous for them now, in the world of telecom, we see people building networks in rural places and gouging customers. Sweetheart deals with governments, and we also see yeah, local monopolies and also abuse of the customers where they won't route traffic to places where are not profitable for them. They won't route traffic to let's say countries like Kosovo where they don't feel like dealing with fraud um, so they just don't do it so that is another problem like with privatization which is the limitation of service um, <clears throat> but again you do have alternatives and you can always buy calling cards uh, to call those places and then call a toll-free number in the states and jump through there's other ways to do it so you're not completely locked in All right and um, so I'm I'm not saying I have any simple solution for this, but it seems, and I've been listening to the, I listened to a whole episode of this leftist stuff yesterday, and it was basically, um, the mantra was, we should feel sorry for people, yes, I agree, and our injustices to people, yes, I agree, and it's a very sad thing, yes, we should be angry about those things, and the solution is bigger government. And the solution is less freedom. And the solution is more bureaucracy and more endless spending. So that's the pattern that I'm seeing here. Well, this is a seven minute introduction. Let's play the clip. You said that the Republican strategy over the decades has been to defund the post office, for example, by forcing them to fund their pension plan going out 75 years in order to actually force their service to deteriorate in order ultimately to privatize the organization. What Louis DeJoy has been doing since the spring is familiar to anyone who's covered the private equity industry in America in recent years. It's you look at an organization that's losing money and then you strip resources from it in the name of efficiency. And then, of course, it becomes less efficient and you're in this endless cycle of taking things away. But the larger project, I think, is ideological as much as it is practical, that conservatives don't like the fact that this is a government institution that works, that the USPS should be treated like a business. That's put a giant target on its back. The Postal Service itself is a kind of American value, saying that we're all Americans and we all should be connected together no matter what that costs. The drive to privatize that not only would have dramatic 
consequences for people who rely on USPS to get medication or to keep in touch with loved ones, particularly incarcerated people. But it also would be... Okay, but I do think we need to create longer analysis of these clips to deconstruct them, to put them into context. So, <clears throat> basically, he's saying that the... Um, well, in the previous clip he said, well, we have these uh, robber barons who are taking a failing organization and downsizing it. But if you're losing money on a failing organization, why give it more money, right? If it's doomed to fail, then let it fail. So that actually does make sense. Um, instead of giving it more money, if it's not structured properly. And um, <clears throat> so I have another proposal for this topic that the government can run the postal office as the sender of last resort. So why don't we have it step in and handle the routes that are not being handled? Right? Kind of like a reserve military unit that jumps in when it's needed. Well, why don't we have the post office deliver packages that are not being delivered? Um, and its budget would be much smaller if we have a privatized uh, post office and some packets are not getting taken. Well, we could have like a special delivery corps, you know, the ranger who's gonna go out into the woods and deliver that one bottle of vitamins to grandma who's living in her mountaintop retreat in the bunker with a shotgun. You know, he knows the secret. Um, knocks as well to get the door to open for grandma. Imagine that. <clears throat> so this next clip, he's going to talk about the narrative. How do you get that narrative that you're describing implanted into the brains of the journalists, he asks. And I think that's an interesting, um, worthy uh, thing it's like do you drink the kool-aid are you a subscriber or believer in a certain topic um, <clears throat> or are you a critical thinker who rejects all propaganda right? um, and he talks about how journalists are hung up on the First Amendment. Good morning. He talks about how journalists are hung up on the First Amendment, but they're not hung up on other values. Um, but what other values are they? His value of the post office providing that last leg, the leg of last resort for people who don't get post otherwise, the connectedness of America, or is the, the value just some value that he made up and that is not in the core values of America, it's not in the Constitution, it's not in the Bill of Rights. Uh, there is no right to subsidize postal delivery, okay? And there's no... I mean, if you live in the middle of nowhere, on top of a mountain, um, that's not reachable at all. Um, you know, that is your choice. Nobody forced you to live there. And the fact that it'll be harder for you to get things is another issue. And uh, people talk about Europe. Now, the other episode, they're talking about the great unhousing. Well, in Europe, you have multi-generational houses, right? And you also have lower property taxes. So, if we were to... Let's say we were to curb our school system and s stop the rampant spending on stuff that they don't need, like the newest... Don't even get me started. Um, and reduce the property taxes, right? Then that would also uh, 
help out people who are, uh, you know, the rents are also just a reflection of the property taxes, for one. Um, insurance, property tax, and, you know, owning property is not really the best um, investment. <clears throat> if it was, why wouldn't all the big banks be owning property, right? And all the investors, they're not. It's a risky business. So, I really should play some clips from that, that episode as well. But I'm just going to um, do the uh, stream of random here and spew. Because these are my thoughts and this is my platform, my little soapbox in, in the park. <clears throat> so, if we reduce the taxes, reduce the property taxes, then, um, well, what about inheritance taxes? I mean, there's all types of taxes that create the situation that we're in. And we have all types of spending for things that we don't necessarily need. So I do say downsize them. And um, also that image of the postal worker being slow. Um, I think that's also the question of the um, Turing machine in the Turing machine type situation where they're interpreting a rule system on top of a rule system, on top of a rule system, etc. And that's also why it's slow because you're being sent from one queue to the other um, and each queue system, basically we have a, uh, a slowed down Turing type uh, machine where the computation is grinding to a halt because um, there's too many layers of interpretation and there's no uh, rationalization there happening. It's not streamlined. So, I definitely see some fat that could be cut. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So I think we should apply some of these um, ideas that we're learning about in reducing the uh, levels of interpretation. Maybe they have to do a Turing-type analysis on the um, host office. Yeah, so everything ties together in some way or another. <sighs> and demands to run like a business when it's not a business. And how do we get the narrative that you just provided back into the minds of the media if, in fact, we have drunk the Kool-Aid? I think that there's a real shyness about communicating values in media. That's not true when it comes to sort of First Amendment issues. Members of the press will always beat their chests when they're kicked out of a White House briefing room or something. But you don't get that with other values. Instead, there's a real reliance on others. You need advocacy groups. You need a postal workers union. Okay, so now we're going to switch to a different source. And this, um, that's to the left. He goes to the next clip. And um, this guy is talking about how the postal service provides living wage jobs. Now, he also says the average wage which I don't think the average wage is really what you should take because probably they have some executives at the top earning a lot that would skew that average. Um, <clears throat> there's different statistical means. So again, we're getting into oversimplifications, but let's hear what he has to say. He says that these jobs will be jeopardized. These are living wage jobs with good benefits. Okay and that we need to have some kind of benefits. Now, the question is, on that topic, 
are these jobs providing value or are they waste? And every time we print money to feed waste where a job is not providing value, it's actually a tax on the entire system. So, um, <clears throat> if those jobs aren't needed, uh, can we provide for those people in a different way? For example, can we give them a job where their skills will be used better? Can they, um, I don't know, can we hire them directly to take care of people in need? Um, to bring them groceries or to bring those pills to grandma? Um, I mean, okay, those were those, or can they be hired by the privatized companies? So can we reorganize this work so that we have some kind of market feedback, some kind of reality check that gives it more information, that guides its progress, and that it's more flexible um, and responsive to the, um, to the world around it, making it a more of a living system. So that's, um, that's the real question here. So, and, um, you know, Andrew Yang, Andrew Yang is talking about this topic as well, where he says we need a universal basic income for the displaced workers, because it's not just the postal workers that are being displaced. I mean, how much do I get in post anyway? Um, I get a lot of spam. I get other information that I could get via the um, internet um, if we had a better cryptography. Um, so then we should say that we should ban cryptography for the benefit of the postal workers. And then finally the delivery of packages. Um, but it seems that Amazon is delivering more packages directly than, than the postal system. I do get some packages from the post. So I think um, we have to differentiate here and we should think about, in general, systems of better feedback from reality, negative market signals, or actual good information. Um, having your ideas die is better than dying yourself, as we learned in a previous episode. And that, um, okay, now he's getting into upward mobility um, for blacks, and that's an interesting point I never heard about, but that's uh, very good that it's providing jobs to people who might not <clears throat> or might have difficulties getting jobs. And um, that's another question we should address, and the question will be, uh, you know, how do you provide jobs for people who might not otherwise get jobs. Um, but times are changing, especially for post, and I think that um, if there's work to be done, that uh, it should also help people out in a social sense, definitely. Um, but if there's no work to be done, then you know we could also just pay them to stay home. Right, and having them sit in a soul-sucking environment, being a little Turing machine that calculates one cog of a wheel that's not used, that's utter waste. Isn't that more um, soul-sucking to someone and creating trauma for them than actually just giving them some money and say, go do what you want and let, let them pick up some other um, thing to do? So. I'm just saying is that if there's if they're not if someone is not adding and I, I'm moving away from the race thing now, but if someone is not adding a value to the system, you know, 
then um, setting them free is not a punishment. It's more of a punishment to keep them. So we have to talk about these different things. And I'm definitely, we definitely have to talk about the education system and providing opportunities for people. Um, but the cozy post office job, I don't necessarily agree that it's the right solution. And to be honest, I'm not particularly happy with the government institutions and how they're being run, so making them bigger um, doesn't seem to make more sense. It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. I think even more importantly is postal service as a working class institution. And this goes to show why they want to privatize it. The joys move to delay mail. It's not just about the election. I think they also were doing this as one more step to undermine it and privatize it. So, you know, the postal service is home to over 600,000 living wage jobs. Um, the average salary is uh, 55,000 a year. So obviously postal workers aren't living large. It's not like a worker's utopia, but in the United States in 2020, it is harder and harder to come by good, solid union jobs with good benefits and stability. So that's a big reason why they want to attack it. And it's you can think of it as a form of union busting. And also, I'll, I'll just say a little bit about particularly for black workers, historically and today, Postal Service has been a very crucial institution for upward mobility. I mean, this goes all the way back to the 1940s, and it's continued all the way till today. 21% of postal workers are black, so they're disproportionately represented in the postal workforce. And again, there's been a crisis in jobs for everyone, but especially black workers, a lot of them, public sector jobs are like the very thin line between some kind of stability and being impoverished. So it doesn't seem like it's a racial justice struggle, but I, I think people should recognize when we talk about Black Lives Matter, we can hold police accountable, we could defund the police, but if at the same time, the postal service is privatized and these jobs are destroyed, that's going to be a disaster. Okay. So I finally found the clip of why he dismantled or moved these machines. And basically, he's moving machines that are not being used and removing mailboxes that are not being used in a cost-cutting um, ploy. I guess he's moving them to other districts. Or, and they were scheduled to be removed a year ago, according to another clip, which I'm not going to play. Um, but it looks like this is alarmist, um, an alarmist uh, behavior at this point, where um, he's taking action to, uh, to do these things. Okay, now, we could paint bad intentions on him. Um, And uh, I think if mail-in ballots are being rejected because they're too late, that would uh, raise other issues where the election would be contested. So people have other avenues for grief. And it could be corrupt before Congress or the Supreme Court again. And it might very well be. So, I mean, uh, things aren't as simple as they're being portrayed. And we're not getting... The full picture of this um, we're just getting one side of the story so it's quite uh, as is with all types of propaganda it's really hard to to get the full story and um, we're just being led by our emotions um, just being led by our own emotion, our emotions um, and I think we should be careful when we're listening to any news <coughs> and anything that is appealing to our emotions our sense of pride or uh, you know all those different things we need to really um, question 
if we're being played <clears throat> and realize there is no simple solution. Will you be bringing back any mail sorting machines that have been removed uh, since you've become Postmaster General? Will any of those come back? There's no intention to do that. They're not needed, sir. So you will not bring back any processors? They're not needed, sir. So, so you've already said, though, today that it's not necessary. But look, when we have only one machine that can do a certain kind of sorting in our largest distribution center in the state of New Hampshire, and it breaks and everything has to stop till it gets fixed again, that's not efficient, that delays delivery. You're really sabotaging the Postal Service's ability to sort mail efficiently, and you're undermining postal workers' commitment to that everyday delivery. Um, so okay, my friends, this is the end of today's show. Uh, it was a short show because I started at so late at 6 a.m., and it's already 8.17. I gotta get back to home, I gotta get my work done, get work started. I'm gonna go check out my chickens, see how they're doing. Say hi to grandma, my mom, and uh, have some more coffee. So, uh, day starting up. I hope you enjoyed this podcast, and um, I'm going to be bringing you more leftist material for deconstruction. Um, this is great stuff. So, uh, I hope you enjoyed it, and uh, we are going to continue uh, looking for the complicated truth or rejecting the simple oversimplifications. Let's put it that way. Have a great day.